Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today is part one of a two-part series, the latest developments reported at the 40th Annual San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other both cancer organizations and many other breast cancer organizations as well. And it's because of that collaboration that we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. And because of your interest on the call as well, this is a topic that really this, um, this meeting, um, this San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, of course, generates a tremendous amount of interest in the breast cancer community. So uh, we have on the call today over 535 participants on the call today, and you come from all of the United States, so all different parts of the United States. And we also have international participants today from Canada, Singapore, Taiwan, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So really um, a bit of a global call, actually, and so we welcome all of you. Today's program is supported by AbbVie, Celgene Corporation, Novartis Oncology, Pfizer, a grant from Genentech, and Hologic, Inc., the science of SURE. And I really want to thank all of them for their support today and for their working together to support this program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Julie Graylow. Dr. Graylow is Professor and Director, Breast Medical Oncology, Jill Bennett Endowed Professorship in Breast Cancer, University of Washington School of Medicine. She's Director, Breast Medical Oncology, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And Dr. Grollo is going to present the purpose of the 40th Annual San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, a bit about the role of genomics in the treatment of breast cancer, and we'll also discuss some of the newer treatments that were discussed at the, at the conference. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Julie Grollo. Thank you, Carolyn, and uh, hi to everybody that's uh, listening in. Uh, as Carolyn's mentioned, this was the 40th annual San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. So this symposium's been around for 40 years now. And what makes this a unique symposium is that it is truly what we call a translational symposium. So we have attendees who work in the lab, and we have attendees who treat patients in clinic, and everything in between. And we meet together to discuss the latest science, the latest clinical findings, um, all targeted around breast cancer. So I've been attending this meeting not for the whole 40 years, but for probably 25 of the years, and it has grown into a really respected international meeting with lots of important um, findings that are presented every year. So um, let's start with how we think about breast cancer in 2017-2018. And while the estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor and the HER2 receptor are still really critically important in terms of how we subdivide breast cancer, 
Um, we we now are moving more and more toward doing more detailed profiling and subsetting breast cancer further and further and further into smaller subsets. So breast cancer isn't just one type of cancer. It's lots of different subtypes of cancer, and it's important to understand the biology of the cancer, what caused that normal breast cell to become a breast cancer, what were all the changes in the DNA um, that led to that cell becoming a cancer in order to best target the treatments and best outline a treatment plan. So some of the language you might hear or read about as we move from just talking about ER, estrogen receptor, PR, and HER2, are what we call the intrinsic subtypes of breast cancer. And while, for the most part, they also relate to what's the estrogen receptor expression in the cell, what's the HER2 expression, um, it, they, they subdivide out breast cancer even further by looking at how are the genes in the cancer being expressed. So we talk about a luminal subtype of breast cancer with luminal A and B subtypes being mostly the endocrine-driven. So mostly they'll have estrogen receptor expression, but not always. And the luminal B being a bit more aggressive. Sometimes they even have HER2 or higher grade. Then there's a HER2-enriched subset of breast cancer that's usually not endocrine-driven, so it would be mostly HER2 positive, ER negative. And then there's a subtype we call basal that most closely correlates with what we call triple negative breast cancer that doesn't have the estrogen and progesterone receptor or the HER2, but it's not a direct overlap. And then even recently, we've identified some additional distinct subtypes. So, for example, lobular cancer is now felt to be its own intrinsic subtype. It's usually estrogen receptor positive, but it acts differently than in ER positive ductal cancer. And then there's a clot and low subtype that usually falls out of the basal or triple negative, and that's a very basic kind of um, not a lot that looks like breast cancer is expressed in that subtype of breast cancer, not a lot of normal breast uh, genes. So that's just a little background. And in the metastatic setting, certainly we're now frequently sending off molecular or genomic profiling to look at all of the expression of hundreds of different genes um, in that cancer. So I'm going to briefly talk about um, two major uh, subtypes of breast cancer, those uh, that express HER2 and those that are triple negative. So with respect to HER2, um, about 20, maybe 25% of breast cancers um, have amplified HER2 genes in the DNA and, and overexpressed protein on their cancer cells. So that's about 20 to 25% of breast cancers. We now have five FDA-approved drugs that target HER2 and a bunch of others that are under investigation. And uh, most recently, we had um, uh, another oral HER2-targeted agent uh, called uh, neratinib that was just FDA-approved in 2017, and that was the fifth FDA-approved drug in breast cancer. So at San Antonio, we had a couple trials I'll just briefly mention, both in um, earlier stage breast cancer. One was a trial called the NSABP B47 trial, 
Um, and that was a trial looking at do tumors that don't have high expression of HER2 but have some lower level or more intermediate level expression of HER2 benefit in early stage breast cancer from having Herceptin or Trastuzumab added to chemotherapy. And so those would be patients that that had a 1 plus or a 2 plus score, for those of you who, who know about HER2 testing. Um, typically, we would want a 3 plus score by immunohistochemistry or a, a, a test called FISH or in situ hybridization that's positive. So this trial took the 1 plus and 2 plus, kind of the, the weaker, what we traditionally think of being maybe more ne HER2 negative study and uh, more HER2 negative expression, and they looked at adding Herceptin to chemo in early stage breast cancer. And the results were it didn't add. So you really need to have high expression of HER2, that HER2 3 plus or FISH positive, in order to benefit. So this resolved something we've been talking about for years now, that the HER2 1 plus and 2 plus, if they're FISH negative, don't really benefit. There was another interesting study called the SOLD, S-O-L-D study, that looked at nine weeks versus a full year of Herceptin in early stage breast cancer. The standard of care is to give a whole year. And uh, so this trial uh, looked at giving nine weeks versus giving a whole year. And it was a complicated statistical design, but the summary was that nine weeks did not appear to be quite as good as a whole year. So the standard of care would remain the same, that in early stage breast cancer, we keep the Herceptin going for a year. Um, but um, but it, actually, they weren't so far apart. So while statistically, um, we'd have to conclude that the nine weeks uh, shouldn't replace one year, I'm a professor of global health, and I'm looking around the world at how can we get some Herceptin and HER2-positive patients in low- and middle-income countries. And so I think that based on how they were pretty close, um, we should actually be looking more in some parts of the world that are, can't afford to give a whole year of Herceptin but might be able to give a few doses. Maybe we should look at some shorter courses of Herceptin in early stage breast cancer. So that was really the things um, that caught my eye in the HER2 positive setting, although, as I mentioned, we have a few drugs that have been approved in the last 6 to 12 months uh, that offer other opportunities like neratinib, like Progetta or pertuzumab in early stage breast cancer. So moving on to triple negative breast cancer, I've told you we keep subsetting breast cancer further and further, and in the triple negative subset or the basal subset that kind of correlates with that, we think there's at least six subtypes of triple negative breast cancer. So you take a cancer that's maybe only 18% of all breast cancers, and that 18% can be subdivided into another probably six subtypes right now. And um, and so they, they differ in terms of the kinds of drugs that they might respond to. There's even a subset of triple negative breast cancer that expresses the androgen receptor, even though it doesn't express other hormone receptors like the estrogen and progesterone receptor, and maybe anti-androgen drugs that we use to treat prostate cancer could work there. So I'm just going to highlight two studies real briefly of, of some new therapies that aren't yet approved or available 
in uh, triple negative breast cancer, but one that I think probably will be pretty soon, um, and one that's a little more early stage but interesting. And both of these trials are antibodies against different proteins that a lot of triple negative breast cancers express, and they're linked to chemo. So while we have a HER2 antibody that's linked to chemo, and that's um, TDM1 or CADSILA, these are for triple negative breast cancer that have different targets that can be found on some, some triple negative breast cancers that link chemotherapy to an antibody. So there's one of a drug that doesn't yet have a generic name. So uh, it's sazituzumab govitectin, or IMU-132. So um, uh, that was presented of, uh, of a study in triple-negative patients who had metastatic disease and had already had some chemotherapy, and now they were given this antibody, and they showed uh, some good response rates that are very promising. And so the FDA has granted this antibody drug conjugate a breakthrough status in triple negative breast cancer, and there's a big randomized phase three trial going on now that I hope, if it's successful, will lead to another option in triple negative metastatic breast cancer. Another antibody drug conjugate that's much earlier in development, but also a cool idea, it targets something called LIV-1, L-I-V-1, and uh, this is an antibody um, that has, again, a chemo drug attached to it. And actually, LIV-1 at least seems to be expressed in a lot of breast cancer, including triple negative breast cancer. So that was presented as just a phase one study with some early promising results. But it will take a lot longer for that to get FDA approval, but again, promising. Um, I'll close with just a little bit of a new category of drug therapy that we call... Um, DNA repair drugs, and the class of drugs uh, that we now in metastatic breast cancer have a drug approved is called PARP inhibitors. So PARP inhibitors um, inhibit a pathway in DNA repair, and so do BRCA1 and BRCA2. So all of these um, these genes, the PARP gene, the BRCA1 gene, the BRCA2 gene, are involved in repairing DNA. So patients who, who inherit a BRCA1 gene mutation and their cancer is, is at least in part due to having an abnormal BRCA1 or 2, they already can't repair DNA very well. And then you add a PARP inhibitor on top of that and you get cell death. The cell, if, if it's mutating, it's trying to get around chemo and figure out how to survive and it's changing. And you, you take a BRCA1 or 2 breast cancer and then you add this PARP inhibitor, it can't change its DNA. It can't change and survive as well. And we, we would call that if you add a PARP inhibitor to a tumor that also has a BRCA1 or 2 mutation as a driver in it, then you get cell death or synthetic lethality. So we already have three PARP inhibitors approved for BRCA1 and 2 positive ovarian cancer or in some other scenarios in um, just regular ovarian cancer for maintenance. And now, as of 2017, we have a PARP inhibitor approved in breast cancer for tumors 
that are in patients who have inherited a BRCA1 or 2 gene mutation. So olaparib was FDA approved in 2017 in metastatic breast cancer that has a BRCA1 or 2 mutation. So um, what uh, happened at San Antonio? We saw the results of a trial called the Embraca trial of another PARP inhibitor called Talazoparib. And that was a trial of metastatic breast cancer where they had an inherited BRCA1 or 2 mutation and they um, were randomized to get chemotherapy or this PARP inhibitor, which is an oral drug that you take daily, talazoparib. And um, so that trial uh, had a positive result. Actually, the, the group that got the talazoparib uh, responded longer than the group that got chemo in this very select BRCA-positive uh, breast cancer. So we're investigating these drugs further. Um, we're looking at earlier stage breast cancer that's associated with a BRCA1 mutation. We actually know that some breast cancers, even though you don't inherit a mutation in BRCA1 or 2, when they become metastatic, they can develop a mutation in BRCA1 and 2. And we also know that there are other inherited genes that also impact DNA repair. And we're going to be doing studies looking at, will these PARP inhibitors work in that setting? Additionally, at least some breast cancers, probably mostly triple negative breast cancers, have uh, something we call BRCA-ness. So they act in terms of their ability to repair DNA, like somebody who inherited a BRCA1 or 2 mutation, even though the, the, they haven't. They haven't inherited a mutation in these genes, but the tumors act in terms of having DNA repair problems. And so we're also doing trials of PARP inhibitors in triple negative breast cancer, and we're looking to see if we can predict for who might benefit from this class of drugs by having a BRCA-like kind of profile in the cancer. So, um, all exciting new areas. We've had quite a few new drugs approved in the last year or two in breast cancer, and um, we're looking for better options, especially for triple negative, but across all breast cancer subtypes. So with that, I'll conclude and hand it back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Gallo. That was really wonderful. Um, very, just lots of enthusiastic information for everybody on the call from San Antonio, from the meeting, and um, and also spoken from your words, so make it so understandable for everybody. So thank you. I know there'll be questions that are starting to come in now um, for you during the Q&A, um, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Catherine Ruddy. Dr. Ruddy is Consultant, Associate Professor of Oncology, Director, Cancer Survivorship, Department of Oncology, Mayo Clinic, College of Medicine, Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Ruddy is going to address treatment for younger and older women and the quality of life concerns, how quality of life concerns um, uh, some of those that, might, that you may be concerned about. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Ruddy. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I really appreciate being part of this fantastic call. I want to start by talking about treatment of young women with endocrine-sensitive breast cancer. For decades, tamoxifen alone has been our standard antiestrogen treatment for these young patients with stage 1 to 3 cancers. 
And there were two trials recently called the TEX trial and the SOFT trial, which both studied what the optimal treatment regimen might be and whether there's something we can do that might be even better than tamoxifen alone for some patients. Tamoxifen is an oral pill, and it works as an estrogen receptor blocker, reducing the risk of recurrence of hormonally sensitive tumors no matter what the ovaries are doing, whether they're producing estrogen or not, so it works in both premenopausal and postmenopausal women. The other type of oral antiestrogen therapy that we commonly use in postmenopausal women is the aromatase inhibitor class of drugs. So examples of this are letrozole, exemestine, and anastrozole. And these work by preventing the conversion of androgens circulating in the body into estrogens in the fat and fibrous tissues of the body. They only work if the ovaries are not producing estrogen concurrently. So they can only be given in combination with a shot that puts the ovaries to sleep if you're going to give it in a premenopausal woman. These shots are called ovarian function suppressing medications. Another name for them are gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists. With the SOFT trial, the comparison was tamoxifen alone compared to tamoxifen with one of the ovarian function suppressing medications. And then the third comparison, the third arm was exemestane with an ovarian function suppressing medication. So the goal was to see if either of the more aggressive anti-estrogen approaches that use the ovarian function suppression reduced the risk of recurrence more than tamoxifen alone did in premenopausal patients. That was the SOFT trial. For the TEX trial, there was no tamoxifen alone arm, so all of the patients got ovarian function suppression, and then they got it either in combination with tamoxifen or in combination with exemestane. And a few years ago, we saw five-year data from these trials that were encouraging about potential value of ovarian function suppression um, and even of potentially a little bit of additional benefit from exemestine compared to tamoxifen in this setting. But it was important in San Antonio this year, we got longer data, data from the eight- to nine-year time point to look at what's happening with these therapies over time. And from the SOFT trial, we saw that the ovarian function suppression did seem to have value, and at eight years, the risk of recurrence was lower in patients who got ovarian function suppression, but most of the benefit was seen in patients who also had large enough tumors to warrant chemotherapy as well. We know that ovarian function suppression does cause additional side effects over tamoxifen alone, for example, so it's probably not right for every patient with premenopausal estrogen-sensitive tumors but this trial does give us hope that it can uh, potentially have value for premenopausal women, particularly with larger tumors um, or, or very young patients. And we are optimistic that this is going to improve outcomes going forward in these patients. For the text trial, the investigators actually were able to combine data with text and soft to look to compare the exemestine versus tamoxifen when both were given with ovarian function suppression. And the data, the nine-year follow-up data, confirmed the previously identified significant improvement in risk of recurrence when exemestine was used compared to tamoxifen. The biggest benefits were seen in the youngest patients. The 
this more intensive, the, the aromatase inhibitor drug does have some side effects that tamoxifen doesn't, and so certainly we have to take that into account, and we don't think that the aromatase inhibitor is appropriate for all premenopausal patients, particularly those with low risk of recurrence, but some patients may want to consider this more aggressive endocrine therapy approach, particularly in the setting of larger tumors or more lymph nodes involved. I want to talk next about another study that's important for young women. We know that one of the major concerns of many premenopausal patients is how chemotherapy will affect their fertility. That's for patients who have not completed their desired childbearing at the time of a breast cancer diagnosis. We know that menopause is a risk of our standard breast cancer chemotherapy regimens, and this risk increases with age, so particularly women who are in their late 30s or 40s would be at higher risk of this. Those who are interested in future childbearing are recommended to see a reproductive specialist as close to the time of diagnosis as possible and before chemotherapy starts. And often a recommendation is made for a consideration of having eggs taken out of the ovaries and frozen for later use if needed. But this can be expensive. It is invasive. It involves putting a needle into the ovary. It's somewhat time-consuming, and it's not 100% effective. So there's been interest in other potential procedures to help protect fertility. And over the years, some have considered using an ovarian function suppressing shot before and during chemotherapy. So this is a different use of that type of medicine. Instead of using it to try to prevent breast cancer recurrence, here it's been used to try to protect the ovaries from chemotherapy with the thought that ovaries that are not cycling, ovaries that are asleep because of these medications, might be less sensitive to the damaging effect of chemotherapy. Matteo Lambertini and colleagues presented an important meta-analysis on this topic at San Antonio. A meta-analysis is a study that takes into consideration data from a variety of studies to gather more definitive results because there are more patients involved. In this case, five studies were included, and the combined results did suggest that ovarian function suppression before and during chemotherapy likely does help protect the ovaries from damage and may contribute to fertility preservation. These are encouraging data for young women who are looking for additional options in this setting. Turning now to older patients. The aromatase inhibitor drugs that are often used for postmenopausal patients with hormonally sensitive tumors are now often combined with newer targeted therapies when patients have metastatic disease, and metastatic disease as you may know, refers to spread of cancer outside the breast and regional lymph nodes. The CDK4-6 inhibitors are targeted drugs. These include palbociclib, ribociclib, and abemaciclib. All of these, when combined with an aromatase inhibitor, have been shown to be effective in extending the time that disease can be controlled by the aromatase inhibitor in patients with hormonally sensitive metastatic breast cancer. Investigators from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration used data from prospective randomized trials in postmenopausal women with hormone receptor positive metastatic breast cancer to assess whether there were age related differences in the value of adding a CDK4-6 inhibitor to an aromatase inhibitor. They were interested in seeing are patients who are over 70, for example, less likely to derive benefit from these targeted therapies. Happily, they found that older patients received just as much benefit as younger patients from this new class of drugs. 
and this is encouraging and reassuring for patients over 70. It should be noted that older patients did have a slightly higher rate of stopping the drug due to side effects, but still seem to get significant benefit from this class. Next, thinking about quality of life concerns. Quality of life is a very important component of our breast cancer treatment decisions. Most, if not all, treatments for breast cancer can cause side effects, which are an important consideration for both patients and providers when deciding what treatment might be best. Joint and muscle pain is one of the feared side effects of aromatase inhibitors and sometimes leads patients to choose tamoxifen instead because tamoxifen is less likely to cause joint and muscle pain. An important study presented by Don Hirschman and colleagues at San Antonio revealed that acupuncture may be a useful treatment for the joint and muscle pains that can occur from aromatase inhibitors. And this is really exciting because it may allow more patients to continue on this highly effective breast cancer therapy. In this study, patients were randomized to either get true acupuncture twice a week for six weeks, followed by once a week for six weeks, or to get something called sham acupuncture, which is basically a procedure where needles are placed but not in the same location that a true acupuncturist would choose for management of the symptom. And then the third group was a waitlist control where they did not get any type of true or sham acupuncture over this six week over this excuse me, twelve weeks. And the true acupuncture, very encouragingly, both compared to the sham and the waitlist group, showed improvement in the pain scores of the patients who received true acupuncture, and also that there were a greater proportion of patients who achieved a statistically significant and clinically significant improvement over their baseline pain. Given that there are not as many existing treatments for joint pain as we really would want in this setting, this is a very important advance and may help many patients continue on aromatase inhibitor therapy and therefore optimally reduce risk of recurrence. With that, I will stop and I'm happy to take questions later in the call. Oh, thank you so much. Um, that really was um, excellent. Uh, Dr. Roddy, my esteemed colleague, you really covered this so well, and I think people are very fascinated by the acupuncture. I know you're going to have questions about that and all the other topics you addressed as well. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, um, and our next um, speaker is um, Ms. Stacey Chilton. Ms. Chilton is an oncology social worker, and she's the Women Cancers Program Coordinator here at Cancer Care. And Ms. Chilton is going to be addressing cancer care's psychosocial programs and services that we offer, as well as the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Chilton. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and I'm, I as well am very happy to be part of this program today. Um, so we've been talking today about the SABCS as well as managing your care and quality of life. So I'd like to just take some time to speak about our services here at Cancer Care, as well as the importance of creating a support network as part of your overall care and how we can be part of your support network. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone impacted by cancer. Our programs here include individual counseling, which we offer face-to-face -face in our New York and New Jersey area, as well as over the telephone nationally support groups, both face-to-face, -face, online, and through the telephone, educational programs like these, practical help, assistance navigating the healthcare system, as well as some limited financial and co-payment assistance. All of our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers, and all of our services are completely free of charge. 
Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer impacts not just a person in treatment, but also his or her family and friends. We're also trained to help patients and their support systems tackle the problems that accompany the disease, such as financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and the psychological impact. And adjusting to and finding ways of coping with your diagnosis in all of these areas is an important part of your process. As you may know, cancer impacts the whole person and their entire support network. We want you to know that asking for help, whether you're a person in treatment, a caregiver, or a loved one, by joining a support group or by contacting us for help or counseling is a sign of strength. You do not have to walk this path alone. Joining a support group can be a way to connect with others who are going through similar situations and likely experiencing similar problems. Individual counseling can provide a space that is yours to voice any concerns and navigate any of the issues I mentioned earlier. And these connections can help lessen the isolation that many people with their caregivers and loved ones may experience. Feeling well emotionally can help you better cope with your diagnosis and treatment. I did want to also mention that at this time, Cancer Care offers private online breast cancer support groups, as well as a dedicated support group for those that are coping with stage four breast cancer. We also offer online groups for those who are post-treatment, as well as caregivers. If you're interested in any of these services, you can call our HOPE line at 800-813-4673 or visit our website, which is www.cancercare.org. And our website is very comprehensive. You'll find information on all the programs that I mentioned, as well as some more specific information on all types of cancer, treatment, and ways of coping. On our website, you can also register for future workshops like these, as well as those online support groups that I mentioned. We've learned a lot from today's program, and there's certainly a lot of information to digest. Our social workers can help you understand what all of this may mean for you and your loved ones. If you have any questions about today's workshop or any of the services I mentioned, please do feel free to call us. And remember that you are not alone. Cancer Care Services are here to help you and your caregivers. And thank you so much for your attention, and thank you, Dr. Messner, for the opportunity to speak today. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Chilton. That was wonderful. And those are wonderful services. If you're not taking advantage of them, please do utilize them. And now we have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask um, uh, Crystal to bring all of our speakers on board. And um, if you would explain to people how to cure for questions, although some people are already asking questions, they may be people who know how to do this, but everyone doesn't. So if you could, um, and we'll see how many questions we can take. And indeed, if we don't get your question at the end of the call, I will explain to all of you how to get your questions answered. Um, so, Crystal? <laughs> Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is open. Thank you so much, Caroline. This is another And it looks like she's actually disconnected her line. So we'll move on to the next question from Lynn F. Your line is open. Hi, this uh, question is directed at Dr. Julie Graylow. Dr. Graylow, it seems as though many triple negs receive neoadjuvant chemo. I've been helping a couple women that have triple negs who had as many as 16 chemo cycles, say, for example, four AC dose dents and 12 weekly taxols, perhaps with or without carbo. Then they go to surgery, and some of these basal tumors do not even respond to all of that chemo. 
So my question is, is there a test which could be done before treatment commences to indicate whether that triple will be chemosensitive, thus helping the patient and the oncologist make a good decision about whether they should proceed with neoadjuvant or go straight to surgery? Thank you. Well, thank you for that question. Always good questions from you, Lynn. And uh, Dr. Grello, if you could address this question in a general way, that would be great. Sure. So, um, so as far as a test that would predict for benefit from chemo or not and help direct should you get the chemo before surgery or after, um, we don't at this point in time have the recommendation for any test that says, oh, this tumor should be more sensitive to this chemo or that chemo, for example. And um, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, just within the last year, reviewed all of the kinds of assays that look for chemosensitivity, um, different chemo agents, and have said none of them are really ready for prime time, although we're interested in that. I guess what I would say is one of the advantages of giving preoperative chemotherapy in triple negative breast cancer is that in and of itself is a test as to whether the, the tumor is chemosensitive because the tumor would still be in the breast and then you'd remove it at surgery. If the tumor in the breast shrunk dramatically, disappeared entirely, which can happen, then you would have confidence that there, if there had been a few cells that had spread beyond the breast to the bone of the liver the lungs that you couldn't see, that they probably would be having the same response. But if after a lot of chemo, as you've outlined, there's still a lot of tumor left in the breast or the lymph nodes, this might be predictive of resistance to chemo and maybe we should do more. So in a sense, that giving the chemo beforehand is a test. And we do have several different ongoing clinical trials for triple negative breast cancer patients that got chemotherapy before surgery and still had a lot of cancer left. We have one trial looking at adding one of the immune checkpoint inhibitors, pembrolizumab. We have a trial looking at adding um, a, 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 yet another chemo drug, but an oral chemo agent called capecitabine or, or zolota. Um, it, we also have a trial looking if the tumor had a, a triple neg it was triple negative but had a BRCA1 or 2 mutation associated with it, you could qualify for a PARP inhibitor, for example. And we have a lot of other models of trials looking at this group that didn't respond well to pre-op chemo, and could we switch the category of treatment in order to do better for these women. So we don't have a great assay looking upfront, should you get chemo first or not in triple negative. But I would say that for a lot of patients, if we're certain we're going to give chemo, that we should do do it up front because we could have this information and patients may then be eligible for one of these other interesting trials where we're trying to look outside the box and do better. Excellent. Wow. Thank you so much. And thank you for that great question, Lynn. Thank you. Um, um, and um, we have another question. Um, well, do we have another telephone question um, at this point, uh, um, Crystal, or should I go to the online questions at this point? And we do have a question. Stephanie Kay, your line is reopened. Oh. Uh, yes, okay. thank you so much, Carolyn. My question is for Dr. Uh, Graylo. Um, I was a ER negative, PR negative, HER2 positive 11 years ago and did have Herceptin for one year. My question is um, the BART test was done for me, and there was an ATM gene. I don't know if anybody knows much about the ATM gene and, and, hope, and then maybe possibly reoccurrence of breast cancer from having 
that non-significant or significant ATM gene. Also, I have a question for Dr. Chilton about they have done any clinical uh, testing at all with acupuncture. They've done that, I know, but what about chiropractic or laser co-laser therapy for joint and muscle pain? Thank you so much. Thank you for your questions. Um, and uh, Dr. Gellar, do you want to go first? And then Dr. Radia. Sure. Well, now the most common way uh, probably that we're doing genetic testing uh, for women diagnosed with breast cancer who have a family history or meet other criteria is that we do big panels. So we look for BRCA1 and 2, but you can have panels that look for 8, 20, 30 different genes. And ATM is one of many genes that we know is not very common but can be associated with inherited risk of breast and other cancers. It's um, And so um, it's included in many panels that we're now testing for. It sounds like what you're describing is something we would call a variant of unknown significance, um, which means that within the ATM gene, but you can have a variant of unknown significance in any of these genes, there's maybe one little swap of in the DNA of, of one of the DNA bases that that is different from what most people have, but we're not sure if it's associated with cancer or not. It might mean that the protein still works just fine, or it might not. And so when we're not sure, because we haven't seen a mutation in this area in enough families, um, we call it a variant of unknown significance, and that means we haven't yet proven that it's tagged to an increased risk of cancer, but it is a little different from what most people have. And so over time, as more families get tested and we see more mutations in this area, we usually can define is this associated with cancer or not. And back when we first started testing for BRCA1 and 2, um, and we didn't have a lot of people and a lot of families tested. We had a lot of these variants of unknown significance that over time women got a notification. We've now reclassified this. It's actually not associated with cancer, or it is. So I think that that's what you have, and it would just mean staying in touch with the genetic counselor and the genetic team uh, for more information in the future. I would not assume that this means that it explains the, the breast cancer that you got. Excellent. Okay. Thank you. And um, Dr. Roddy, do you want to address the acupuncture question? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm not aware of any studies related to chiropractory for the arthralgias. Uh, I'm not aware of laser either, although I, laser, interestingly, is currently under study in, uh, for vaginal dryness, and there's a study that's hopefully going to launch soon through the Alliance for Clinical Trials looking at vaginal dryness specifically due to breast cancer therapies, aromatase inhibitors, and whether vaginal laser can help with that specific symptom. Um, regarding the arthralgia symptom, there have been studies suggesting that yoga may be beneficial. There's currently a mindfulness meditation study that is not specifically focused on arthralgias, but actually there are some data for hot flash management with mindfulness meditation. Um, certainly exercise and weight loss can play a role, and I've had patients tell me that massage is helpful for them as well. So I do think that these integrative therapies may be useful for arthralgia management, but I don't specifically know about chiropractory or laser. And uh, thank you so much, Dr. Redding. There's another question kind of related to this. Is um, she, The question is from one of our online participants. What is the name of the acupuncture study done for side effects that you mentioned? 
Actually, uh, Dr. Graylow, you had the name. I, I actually don't have the specific name of it. Do you know what the name of that study was? Yeah, so it's, um, if you want to look it up, it's SWOG, S1200. Um, it's been published. The first author is Don Hirschman, H-E-R-S-H-M-A-N. And what's really fascinating uh, and that I find helpful with this study now that it's a, a positive study is there's a companion paper that was published by a Ph.D. naturopath who we just recruited here to lead our integrative medicine center, and her name is Heather Greenlee, G. R-E-E-N-L-E-E. So you can find that paper that's got the technique for how we taught the acupuncturists exactly what to do. And so I um, actually have copies of the technique paper so that if I have patients that want to go to an acupuncturist, they can actually give this paper to them and say, this is exactly where we put the needles, et cetera, and how often we did it. Um, So that's um, the SWOG S1200 trial. Thank you. This is wonderful. And we do have a question in front of our participants about whether you'd be able to listen to this call, an audio file of the call after the call. And indeed, it does exist. Um, it will go up as a podcast probably within one to two days of the program. So I would say, and you'll be able to access it and listen to it as often as you want to, um, certainly for the next year, if not longer. Um, so just to know that 365 days, a, 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 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. So that, and that's true for all of our programs. Um, and we have another question. <laughs> we have another question in front of our um, online participants, um, and this one is um, for Dr. Um, uh, well, I'm going to start with Dr. Ruddy on this one. So it appears that we can only treat breast cancer after it has been diagnosed. Do you see a time when we will be able to intervene and prevent it from presenting? Thoughts about that, uh, Dr. Ruddy? <laughs> Yeah, I I do think that we are making strides toward prevention, and there certainly are some preventative strategies that are already in place. Women uh, who are at higher risk of breast cancer, whether that's related to genetics or related to a history of a non-invasive malignancy that, that increases future risk, sometimes opt to take a drug like tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor, and we know that those drugs do reduce risk of a breast cancer developing. So so we do have some prevention strategies in place, um, but hopefully over the years to come we'll be able to refine these and optimally target these and develop new preventative strategies so that fewer women have to go through the breast cancer experience. Thank you. And we have a telephone question, I believe, as well um, at this point, um, Crystal. Thank you. And our next question comes from Kim Kay. Your line is open. Hi, thank you. This was sort of answered by talking about the paper for acupuncture that you give to patients to make sure their practitioner is doing the right methods. That was along my questions is our center does not have integrative medicine here, so they often ask us for community referrals, and I'm completely unfamiliar with how to um, vet an outside provider like an acupuncturist to give a patient a good recommendation. Is there an overarching body that I could look at? Oh, thank you. That's an excellent question, actually. Um, uh, uh, Dr. Ruddy, do you, do you want to comment on that? Or? I, tr- I truthfully don't know the answer to that. We do have integrative medicine here, so I haven't had to deal with that. Dr. Graylow, do you have any advice on that? Well, um, I would just say that um, I, 
we're just really building our integrative medicine program. I'm fortunate that I, I have a, a PhD naturopath who is, understands evidence and science and that we trust and respect. And I have a great group of naturopaths and acupuncturists in the greater Seattle area who we interact with regularly. And I think a lot of them know who to refer to as well. I mean, because you want to do things like this sometimes close to home. So uh, with respect to the acupuncture question, I suspect that the the authors, the the principal investigators for the trial would be happy to help you with the, your question about how do you vet who a good acupuncturist would be. I li- the main reason I hand out the uh, methods paper is so that at least, you know, I tell the patient, you know, show this to them, see if they think they can follow it. And if they say, oh, no, no, I'm going to do it this way, then maybe question that, you know. Um, same thing w- with um Naturopaths, I mean, I have, you know, we have great relationships built up with a lot of our naturopaths, and um, we, um, at least in the state of Washington, we we license naturopaths, and there's actually a a national oncology certification you can do in naturopathy. I think people who at least go through the studying and taking the test have probably shown interest in in it and, uh, you know, would be a good group to start with. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and we have a question in front of our online participants, um, and um, I'm going to direct this one um, to Dr. Um, Dr. Grelo. So, since PALB2 is related to BRCA, would the new drugs approved for, in 2017 for BRCA1-2 mutations work for someone with metastatic breast cancer with a PABL? PABL2 mutation. So so that's a great question. As I talked about when we're doing these panels now, we're looking at many genes beyond BRCA1 or 2, and some of them are also involved in DNA repair, like PALB2, the one that the, the question is about. So I would hypothesize that PARP inhibitors uh, could possibly work through the same mechanisms in a tumor that is associated with a mutation in the PALB2 gene. Um, we're going to do some studies to try to define that. Um, so right now it's my expert opinion that it might work. Um, and uh, depending on what other treatment options are available for the patient, uh, I might proceed and try to get um, a compassionate use in this setting. Um, but we are going to be doing some trials, um, looking at other inherited genes that are related to DNA repair. And, and also, the, I told you the subset of tumors where the patient didn't inherit a mutation in these genes, but the tumor actually actually developed an abnormality in one of these genes over the course of, um, you know, spreading and becoming metastatic and going to different sites. So that's called a somatic mutation as opposed to an inherited germline mutation. So those studies are ongoing um, right now, but my guess would be that this class of drugs would probably have efficacy for the the very small number of metastatic breast cancer patients that have a PALB2 mutation. Excellent. And uh, Dr. Roddy, do you want to add to that? Or? No, I think that was beautifully said. Well, that's very comprehensive. Okay, excellent. And um, so another question from our online participants. Um, also, um, 
So this one, uh, again, these are wonderful questions, I must say, and, and, and great responses from our, our speakers as well. So for Dr. Grelo, can you explain the crosstalk between ER positive and HER2 positive? I'm triple positive, and although that gives me a number of treatment options, I have heard the crosstalk between the two can make it less responsive to therapy. Is this common? Also, how, and there's a second part. Also, how common is it to lose your ER or HER2 positive status? So, um, so we know that a HER2 positive breast cancer does have a different response, um, for example, to preoperative chemo with HER2 therapy if it's ER positive or ER negative. So a HER2 positive, ER negative breast cancer patient who gets uh, prior to surgery gets chemotherapy and HER2 antibodies um, is more likely to have complete elimination of all the cancer in her breast and lymph nodes than a tumor that's HER2 positive and estrogen receptor positive. But So that just means that you're more likely to respond to chemo, really, and yet you have the benefit, if you're ER positive, of then going on after surgery and getting five to ten years of estrogen receptor-targeted therapy, and when you compare long-term relapses and survival, they're really not different for a HER2-positive tumor based on ER status. So while there might be a better response to the chemo part of things, if it's estrogen receptor negative and HER2 positive. The long-term relapses and survival even out because you get the benefit of adding the estrogen receptor positive uh, treatments like the tamoxifen, the aromatase inhibitors that Catherine talked about. And then I totally didn't write down what the second part of the question was. <laughs> Remind me what the second part was. The second part for you. Um, so... Um how common is it to lose your ER or, P or HER2 um, positive status? Well, so um, so the, the breast cancer that starts in the breast, um, if it recurs, which of course we give a lot of therapy hoping that it doesn't, but if it recurs in a distant place like the bone or the liver or the lungs, when we do biopsies of that distant or metastatic recurrence, we find that Maybe, and depending on the study, 10% uh, of the time, the estrogen receptor, the progesterone receptor, or the HER2 has changed. So we've, we've treated the cancer. We've usually given a bunch of drugs. We've probably killed a majority of the cells, but somehow some cell or some clone of the cancer survived to grow back, and that might look a bit different. So we think at least maybe 10% of the time, there's a change in one of these receptors. So it's, a, it's really a very strong recommendation that at the time of relapse um, that we re-biopsy, repeat these, these receptors. And even at the time maybe of if the tumor starts growing again and shows up in a new spot, to go and biopsy that and make sure that it's still expressing the estrogen receptor or the HER2 receptor. I think ultimately maybe this concept of liquid biopsies, which is where you draw blood and you look for the tumor 
whether it's DNA or RNA or even tumor cells floating around in the blood, maybe that will replace having to do a bunch of biopsies in the bone or the liver or the lungs or the lymph nodes. Um, but right now they're not quite ready for prime time. So it is, you know, while... I'm, if you take the reverse, 90% of the time the ER and the HER2 stay the same, but we do see changes, and it's important to know what's going on in the cancer that we're treating now. Excellent. Thank you. This is, these are really amazing. Uh, thank you. These are amazing questions. And um, a question for Dr. Ruddy. Um, so um, the could you suggest what differentiates the hormone-sensitive cancer from non-hormone-sensitive cancer? So could, um, what differentiates? A hormone-sensitive cancer from a non-hormone-sensitive cancer. Sure. Um, so when I use those terms, what I'm really talking about is those, is those receptors that Dr. Graylow discussed. So we have both the estrogen receptor and the progesterone receptor can be expressed on the breast cancer cell. And when we have really either of those expressed, we think of this as a hormonally sensitive tumor. Uh, if neither of those is expressed, then, it, then it's generally a hormonally insensitive tumor. Now, to get a little bit more complex, for patients who have metastatic tumors that do express the estrogen receptor, sometimes over time they stop responding to hormonal-type agents and we end up needing to use different types of approach to, to treat them. Um, but in general, uh, particularly with relation to early stage disease, we're talking, when we say hormonally sensitive, um, we really mean do they express either the estrogen receptor or the progesterone receptor. And in a lot of cases, the, these tumors express both. Awesome. Thank you. And um, this is also a question, and just in terms of the discussions that people have in the support groups that you lead and the people that you talk to, um, it, it, these are lots of information people to incorporate. Do you want to comment on this, just of how um, sometimes talking with someone um, about just the emotional impact of all of this um, can be helpful in, in just their coping? Sure. So just um, just in a general way, I can sort of review what the support groups offer. So we have online support groups. They're private. It's a message board format, so it's different than a live chat in the sense that uh, it's not a specific time that everyone is going on at the same time to talk to each other live. Um, that has some, some many advantages, I think, in that it's very convenient for everyone's schedule around your treatment. Um, if you have trouble getting to a face-to-face -face support group, either physically or, or um, logistically, it's a great option as well, and our online groups, as I said, are moderated by one of our social workers. So in the group, um, it can really be a, a wide range of discussion. The social worker is there to sort of moderate and facilitate discussions um, rather than sort of suggest or structure topics. So it's really organic in the way that the participants will bring up the things that they want to discuss. And what we find very often is that people really enjoy um, connecting with others who have gone through similar experiences. Uh, people can ask each other questions about sort of the treatment that they're doing, what they've experienced. Uh, there's a lot of support being offered. And as I said, we also have a separate dedicated group for uh, people that are experiencing stage four as there are certainly uh, sometimes some other separate and additional concerns that come with that diagnosis. So having that safe space uh, for that group as well. Um, so if you're if you're on the fence about a about a group, uh, an online group can be a nice way to sort of 
ease into a support group. Some people appreciate the, the online format because it can be a little bit more um, anonymous per se than a face-to-face -face group. You do have to register, so it's, it's not completely anonymous in that sense. But if you're feeling like a face-to-face -face group is something you're not ready for, uh, maybe you could start out with an online group. And, and again, all that information is available on our website, which is cancercare.org, and all of those online groups are free as well. Thank you. That's really great for people um, all over the country and internationally, the online groups. No time area that you can't post something, and, um, and it's good for people who actually stay up all night and want to post something in the middle of the night, which often people have issues, and they, that's when they have the time to do that. Thank you. And um, both Dr. Ruddy and Dr. Grable, do you want to comment just in terms of where we are with San Antonio and just, and just how that meeting, the information that meeting may really impact um, the future of the treatment of breast cancer in general? Although you've already done that to some extent, but to say, if you want to say, just to kind of last hurrah to everybody on the call in terms of what, what the implications may be for them. Dr. Cralo, um, do you want to go first? Sure. Well, I think that what Catherine and I picked out, we tried to pick out trials that um, might be a little bit more ready for prime time while also trying to show some hope with some some drugs that we think are fairly far along in development. Um, there's a lot of really early basic work that that was presented at this conference where you look at it and you say, this could be really exciting. That will will end up not proceeding never become available. So we chose not to highlight that, although it's always exciting to see and then watch these ideas, these early results move along. Um, so um, so I think that the meeting, you go and you go, wow, I never thought about that, or that's a really cool finding. We need to research that and see if, if we can reproduce it. Those are the kinds of things that happen a lot at this meeting, although they're not ready to change practice or available to patients tomorrow. I also... You know, we'll just add the plug that um, pretty soon we're going to have our annual um, ASCO meeting, our American Society of Clinical Oncology. And while that covers all types of cancer, um, we're hoping we're going to have some very interesting and important um, breast cancer information that's presented there in early June as well. So science proceeds, and we, we, we have to keep doing research because that's how we prove that things work or don't work or that they're safe. And um, I think these are pretty exciting times. We've had a lot of drug approvals and interesting information uh, on improving supportive care as well in the recent past. Awesome. Thank you. And Dr. Roddy, do you want to, your comments as well? Uh, no, I, I think that uh, summarized it beautifully that for me the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium is the most interesting and high-yield meeting of the year as a breast medical oncologist, and you know, I look forward to it every year to, to learn things that help me take better care of my patients. And um, so, so hopefully this will continue for many years in the future. It certainly, we expect it will be. It's the 40th year, and we expect next year will be its 41st year. And I think as also um, uh, you'll be hearing more information at the post-ASCO um, but the ASCO meeting, and we'll be doing a post-ASCO workshop as well, so I'm, and breast cancer will be part of it, so definitely stay tuned. Um, and I actually I want to thank all of you for your participation today. You've been an extraordinary um, and uh, just a, a great, uh, a great um, group of participants on the call. I want to thank our speakers who've been extraordinary, really. These esteemed speakers are just amazing. Uh, they... Um, 
They they have they treat patients all the time, and they're so um, up to date with all of the current treatments. So it's really a gift to all of us to be able to listen to them speaking, and also to all hear your wonderful questions as well, because your your questions are very thoughtful and very thoughtfully carried out. And also some of you are listening as well on the call today. Now I do want to remind you this is a one-hour program, and that in planning a program like this, we know that you have many needs that go far beyond the scope of one hour. So um, I did say that I would get back to you if you have a question that didn't get answered, so I do want to be sure that you know how to get your questions answered. So for those of you who still have a question um, at the end of today's call, um, I want you to know that you um, certainly um, can, of course, go to your healthcare team. They, of course, know you best, and they will be most able to help you with your questions. But I know some of you like to go to credible sources for information. So I always recommend the National Cancer Institute. Um, they're Basic number is 1-800-422-6237, and their website is www.cancer.gov. And the nice thing about their website is that it does have a, a live chat feature, um, so you can post a question from anywhere in the United States or in the world, and their information specialist will get back to you with lots of information that's credible and that's research-based to answer your questions. That's really, and then you can take that back to your treating healthcare team. <clears throat> Um, in addition, of course, we have many other collaborating organizations on this program, and when you, when you get your evaluation form, all of those groups will be listed, so you'll be able to contact them. In addition to Cancer Care as a resource, there are many other resources out there, um, and so that's important for you to have as well. And um, as, as I think as uh, Ms. Chilton has said, as we conclude the program today, we don't want any one of you to feel you're alone. We want you to know that you're now part of not only the cancer care community, but actually all these other organizations as well, all of us there to help you. Um, and we're simply a phone call away or a mouse click away to go to the website and post your question. Um, and we do have a bunch of programs coming up, and you'll be hearing about those when you get your evaluation. More programs, some of you have signed up for them already, but there are more coming up so that you'll be able to kind of listen to them. And again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day. <laughs>